So I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 4, today Acts chapter 4, where we're going to put in, and uh, we've got a, kind of a lengthy section, so I'm going to read it, might be a little bit quicker, but uh, I'm sure you all can follow along, Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, and being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus... But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. The Bible, among other things, a lot of other things, is a true story of the greatest drama ever. It's the drama of redemption. And like any drama, it has conflict in it. Kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. And it goes, it's a story that's as old as the Bible because it, it, it goes back to when Abraham, when God called Abraham, this one single man, and called him to a land that he was going to give him. This man, Abraham, experienced conflict 
all along by a bunch of robber baron kings. Hundreds of years later, when God chose Moses to redeem the people from Israel, when they went out across the desert, they were attacked by all kinds of nation tribes. There was conflict. They were opposed everywhere on the way to the promised land. The kings of Israel, as you read the history of Israel, had war on every side. Conflict, constant conflict. The prophets were oftentimes opposed by the people, by their own people. Conflict. And even with Jesus, much of his three and a half year ministry was spent in conflict with the religious authorities. And today, in our text, we see at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 4, that the apostles found themselves in the middle of that same conflict. By the power of the risen Jesus Christ, Peter had preached one day earlier, and 3,000 had been saved. And by that same power of the risen Jesus Christ, and in His name, a lame man who had been lame, as the text told us, for 40 years, had been completely healed undeniably healed, publicly healed, completely healed. And Peter and John used this occasion to preach the gospel of Jesus, and thousands more were saved. But it didn't take long for the opposition to show up. And this brings us to the conflict in today's story, and the conflict that's in every Christian's life. Every Christian, everywhere, at all times, Are you ready? This is what the conflict is. In chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus commanded his apostles, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the rest. That's chapter 1, verse 8, and that was from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you look down in chapter 4, verse 17, the passage we just read, the rulers warned them not to speak to any man in the name of Jesus. In verse 18, they commanded them not to teach. And Jesus early had told his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So the conflict was still there. In verse 21, they threatened them. And so there you have the conflict that most all of us are all too familiar with every day. The Lord Jesus Christ says, to the apostles and to us, you must proclaim my gospel. And the world says, you better not or else. And many, if not of us, many, if, many, if not most of us live in fear of the or else among coworkers, among family members, and especially if you're like me, among those who, who, who kind of broadcast ahead, right? And they say, well, you know, I'll have interaction with you or I'll be your friend or I'll do this or I'll do that, but you better not tell me about Jesus. I don't want to hear it. It's conflict. It's a global conflict. It is a kingdom conflict. Just this week, I received a text from a man who's going through some really difficult times. I mean, He's gotten slammed by three gigantic events all at one time in his life. And I don't know him well, 
at all, but he, uh, he called me and asked me to meet with him and we're making plans to meet. But my, my schedule has been really slammed lately and so I couldn't get to meet with him right away. So I invited him to church until we can meet. And this is the text I got in response. I grew up Catholic, was an altar boy, but never went to Catholic church as an adult. There has to be more than guilt and being hot for eternity to motivate me. I'm not churchy either, but lead a good life and love my kids. Which translated means, I'm warning you, don't give me this Jesus stuff. Jesus commands witness, the world threatens don't. That's the conflict. And with this conflict in full view, our passage today shows how the power of Jesus enables us. What God requires of us, witness, God enables us and provides for us. What God requires, what God demands, God provides. The power, the power to obey, the power to persevere under trial and for His glory. So we see with the apostles here, the the first thing that they had was confidence in Jesus Himself, that He is Lord that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he has all authority, that he has, that he is all powerful. As a matter of fact, that name of Jesus is used seven times in our text and all of the power and authority that goes with it. You see, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and raised from the dead. But that resurrection is not just a thing. God, in Romans uh, uh, 1, verse 4, says, the resurrection is God's powerful declaration that Jesus is Lord. Listen to this scripture, Romans 1, 4. Who, Jesus, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Sovereign. And resurrection was really the rub, wasn't it? Because if you look... Early on, the thing that brought the Sadducees and the chief priests and all that stuff, what, what was the resurrection? Because these guys were preaching the resurrection. And the Sadducees, it, it, it's really, um, it really fits our environment because they really weren't interested too much in the religion of the whole thing. They were more a political body, really. And they, uh, their, their, their big deal was that they wanted to keep peace with Rome. And so they just didn't want any kind of disturbance that would, that would cause Rome to have to send people and spend money and do all this kind of stuff. Any kind of messianic thing they thought could cause a revolt and, and, uh, and so they wanted to put that down. It was really kind of a political thing. We don't want you preaching the resurrection. That could cause trouble. And Rome, of course, for their part, what they did was they rewarded the Sadducees with all kinds of important offices and, and things like that. So it was kind of a hand-washing-a-hand thing. Sadducees saying, we don't want you preaching about it. So they just came out. Originally, they just put them in jail. Because you see, in the Roman Empire too, on the religious aspect of it, Caesar was Lord. Caesar. Many eventually paid with their lives because they refused to acknowledge Caesar Curios. Caesar is Lord. But, 
<laughs> the Sadducees recognize this right away. But everyone knows, no matter who claims what, that if someone raises themselves from the dead, that they are automatically Lord, right? I mean, they got that. Do we get that? That Jesus was raised from the dead and He is Lord. Automatically trumps all other claims over Caesar, over Buddha, over Muhammad, over all the isms, over all the ologies, over the intellect or the will of men. And you know, resurrection was the rub that day and resurrection is still the rub this day. Because if Jesus is alive, he will have to be reckoned with. If he's resurrected from the dead, then he is Lord over all and Lord of all. There are no exceptions. Peter, later in Acts, the same Peter, uh, said this, And he, that is God, or Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one, Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And that's pretty much everyone everywhere of all ages. So, if you're in here today and you think or you assume that you can just ignore Jesus and go about your business, you're sadly mistaken. This Jesus has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. That's a popular thing to think that the Lordship of Jesus is optional. There's a story about Jane Fonda, you know, our Vietnam War vet, <laughs> the Jane Fonda that went, when she went to Westminster Abbey in England, she uh, had a conversation with the Archbishop of Canterbury in the late 80s. And the Archbishop said to Jane Fonda, he said, you know, Jesus is Lord. And she quickly shot back, well, maybe he is for you, but he isn't for me. To which the Archbishop replied, well, either he is or he isn't. We don't get to make that decision of whether Jesus is Lord. The decision has been made by God in Psalm 2. And everywhere else in the Bible, Psalm 2 is a very forceful explanation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the declaration of God that He is Lord. So that decision's been made, but we get to simply choose when to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. We can acknowledge it now in joyful submission or later in abject fear. He's the judge of the living dead. And the Bible says, before him, before Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all. Now, because he was Lord and because he was over all, the apostles would persist in preaching Jesus in spite of the threats or the consequences. 
As the Lord Jesus has all power and all authority over threats and over consequences. And what that means is that there's nothing that's going to happen to all of us that call on his name. Nothing is going to happen to us that call on his name that has not first passed through his loving will for us. The the apostles were confident and entrusted their well-being to Jesus. And we can be confident of that too. Well, the apostles were confident in the lordship of Jesus. They were also confident in the whole gospel. The whole gospel. Now, they preached, if, if, if you look back, we don't have time to do it now, but if you look back into chapter 3, and, and chapter 2, they, the, the, the apostles preached the same gospel to the rulers over them as they did the people around them. The same gospel. They didn't reconfigure the message because of their power and authority of the rulers. They didn't soften their guilt. Now the people, remember there was 3,000 saved, one preaching and 2,000 later. The people were at least partly receptive. The rulers weren't at all. But they did not reconfigure the message or water it down to make it more palatable. The gospel is specific truth. There is a body of evidence and truth in the gospel. It has to do with the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ for sins. They can't be watered down and must not be watered down. In 1912, a Scottish minister by the name of James S. Stewart, who was uh, posthumously awarded the best preacher of the 20th century. It's a name you should probably know. Best preacher of the 20th century by Preaching Magazine. (laughs) At the age of 16, he addressed the faculty and the students at Yale. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but just as a sideboard, a little factoid, All of the Ivy League schools, did you know this? All of the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Brown, Columbia, Princeton, I can't remember, but all of the Ivy League schools were founded to educate ministers of the gospel. All of them were. So here he was, 16 years old, uh, a Scottish preacher addressing the students and the faculty at Yale. And he warned them of a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating Christianity, which Stuart said is less than useless. We need to be beware of proclaiming a God who does everything in general and nothing in particular. The apostles were crystal clear on the gospel, crystal clear, and a great number of them, a great number of men were saved. We know they were clear because they presented the gospel in a personal way. It was personal. Look in verse 11. Peter said, You, the builders, you, the builders, are the ones that rejected the stone that became the chief cornerstone. It was you. And, and, and what would have happened at that time because they, they were the chief priests and, and all the, the Sanhedrin and the, the, all the suits were gathered there with them in the middle. 
And when, when Peter brought up that scripture, it would have immediately brought back to their mind the parable that Jesus told them personally, not that long before. Same people, same scripture. And the parable was about the stone that the builders rejected. The story, we don't have time to look at it. You can do it for your homework if you want in in, uh, Matthew chapter 21. It's the story of the landowner. And the landowner in this story uh, built a vineyard. He planted it. He did everything that was necessary for the vineyard, put a wall around it, all that stuff, and then rented it out to people and took off. Now, this is a parable, a story that Jesus is telling the, the same folks that Peter is talking to. And so the parable goes on. So uh, when the time for the harvest came, the owner sent his slaves to go collect his part of the harvest. But the parable says that, uh, that these, uh, these renters, these evil renters, beat up the slaves, killed some, stoned the others. And so... So the, pair, the, the, the landowner sent some more slaves, and they did the same thing to them. But then the owner said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They'll respect him. But they beat him and killed him. And Jesus asked these Pharisees at this time, same people that Peter's talking to, and I'm sure this was in the middle of my Jesus asked me, he said, so what do you think that that landowner is going to do with those renters. And he says there, he is going to take those wretches and bring them to a wretched end. So that was, Peter was confronting them personally, but he wasn't doing it. It wasn't Peter that was doing it. Peter was bringing up the scriptures. Peter was doing it with the Scriptures. It wasn't Peter throwing down. It wasn't Peter condemning him. It wasn't Peter judging him. He was informing them and holding forth the Word of God. Men need to learn of their sin against God. Presenting the Savior without first presenting the need of one is pointless. In the 1970s, Some of us remember the 70s, (laughs) or a long time before that. In the 70s, there were bumper stickers that said, Jesus is the answer. To what? To my sorrow? To my need for a friend? To my unhappiness? What? And today, Jesus is often still presented the same way. He's the remedy for whatever ails you. And when you no longer feel the need for for Jesus, he can be put aside till the next time you feel the need. No, Jesus is the sacrifice that stands between us and the holy eternal wrath of God because of our sins. We sang a song last week that I, there's a lot of songs we sing here that I love, but it's Come Thou Fount. And one of the verses says this, Jesus sought me. When a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed. That's a good word right there. Interposed his precious blood, which means that Jesus put his blood between us and the wrath of God.
Men need to know about their sin because without that, presenting a Savior is pointless. So it was personal the way that the, the, the apostles presented the gospel. It was also pointed because he, he, he says, he says, and in this name, there was no one else. There is no other name. Well, the rulers didn't want to hear that. Others don't want to hear that. People today don't want to hear that. It's intolerant, we're told, narrow-minded. And and all the things, all the pushback and all the blowback that comes as a result of presenting the gospel that way, as Jesus as the only way. It seems there's there's no end to all the complaints about that. But the thing that seems to be last, and the thing that seems to be of least concern, is the fact that it's true. Jesus said, "I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father." He was clear about this at a number of points in the Bible. Narrow, narrow, narrow is the gate that leads to life. Broad's the way that leads to destruction. They were very pointed. And it was pressing. It was personal. Their gospel was pointed and it was pressing. He said, there's no other name. No one else given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. It was pressing. Peter's and John's, because it says they, their, their, their presentation of the gospel to these rulers exposed their need. They preached the name and urged them to act now. Does your gospel have an urgent edge to it? Or have you attempted to make it more user-friendly? Are you giving your hearers the idea that, you know, God's kind of put the gospel out there and, uh, you know, for you and any time you decide, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's there for you. Now, while we're aware, we're very aware that we can't save anybody or cause anyone to make a decision for Jesus Christ, anyone to put their faith in Him, the urgency of the Bible gives to the gospel call must be sounded. It's urgent. Why? Because we know one thing. God's wrath is already upon unrepentant sinners. Not going to be. Is already. Jesus said to, in John 3.36, He says, he says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides, present tense, is abiding on him. John 3.36. In Romans 1.18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed, not will be, is revealed against all men, who, uh, uh, all ungodliness, um, an unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed. John 3.18 says, He who has believed is not condemned, but he who has not believed is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Who has believed is not condemned, but he who has not believed is condemned already. Condemned to what? A timeout? 
go to the back of the line and try again? Can Dan tell the next time we meet? No. Condemned to the eternal wrath of God. The, the wrath of God is not a future possibility, but it's a present reality. Jonathan Edwards, one of the, is, I think without doubt the greatest theologian that's ever come from the North American continent. Some of you may be familiar with him. Preached a famous sermon. It's one that got him removed from his church in Northampton. Greatest theologian. Guy wrote extensively on the love of God. But he preached this sermon in Northampton, Massachusetts at, at his church. It was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he described the sinner this way. As a spider dangling above the flames. And he wrote in that sermon, quote, God holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever than a stubborn rebel did his prince. Yet it's nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It's to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. Yes, there is nothing else that's to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop into hell. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger that you're in. That's why it's urgent. That's why it's now. God's furious wrath is a present reality for sinners. And the only escape, the only escape is the love and the mercy that's found through faith in His beloved Son, whom He sent to be the Savior of the world. All of that wrath taken away through Jesus and much more. You see, it's, it's the bad news that makes the good news the great news. Now, in a group this size, there's some likely here today who have heard the gospel and put it off and maybe thought, well, maybe some other time. Please consider what the Bible says about your precarious position. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Jesus died and took the full wrath of God on the cross for all who will repent. If that's you, if, if you're one that has put it off and God is prevailing on you to put it off no longer and you want to do business with God today, come up and, and, and see me afterwards. love to talk to you. So they were not only confident in the gospel, they were confident in the Holy Spirit. I guess the question is, for those of us who struggle who with this conflict that just keeps going and going and going, to proclaim my name, proclaim uh, my lordship, proclaim my gospel to a world and a world that insists that we don't, 
My question is, how did these men do it? How did they obediently uh, proclaim the gospel in the, in the face of these threats? Because the threats are, are unspecified. It just says that they threatened them, and then they said, well, we're going to do what God told us to do anyway. Um, and so they threatened them further. So the idea of the world is if, if you threaten and that doesn't work, just threaten some more. <laughs> the threats were this. First, uh, probably revocation of temple rights, which means to a Jew that lived in Jerusalem or, or came to Jerusalem, if they could not be uh, have access to the temple, that was a big deal. And not only that, they could revoke their synagogue entrance. And so you know what that means for a Jew? The, the, the synagogue was a whole socioeconomic, it was a way of life. And, and for these guys to threaten them was kind of saying, okay, uh, apostles, uh, if, if you continue preaching in, the, in this name, it's the end of your life as you know it. It's over. So some of us that think about offending friends or uh, about the, the, the pushback we can get from coworkers or, or things like that. We need to realize this is the same stuff. It's the exact same stuff. So how did they do it? How did they bear up? They'd be outcast and ridiculed and imprisoned, punished. Some of the same face, uh, threats that we face today and some that we don't. So how were they able? The answer is that they were given Holy Spirit Boldness. That's what they needed, and that's what you and I need. Holy Spirit boldness. Acts 1.8, Jesus promised him, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Peter, it says in the text that we looked at today in verse 8, it says that Peter, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke out to them. And in, in chapter 431, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word with boldness. The Holy Spirit is the key, is the power that Jesus has given us. It, you know, I said before, what God demands, God provides. And through the Holy Spirit, He provides to us the power, the boldness to speak out. Because we can't, I don't know if you about you, but... Well, I think I do, but about me, I, I can't gin up sufficient boldness, but we need it for proclaiming the gospel, and God provides it through the Holy Spirit. A God demands, God provides. And you know, it's interesting that Jesus had told these apostles in, in, in Luke 21, you can check it later, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting because talking about this very kind of situation. And maybe this very one, Jesus said, I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to refute or resist. And it's so encouraging because we see the apostles who had every reason to be afraid of these men. They weren't. But the rulers were. Because remember, they didn't really want to let them go but on account of the people, they did let them go. The word of the, the 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 Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. Also, I think it's ironic here that the apostles were the ones that obediently spoke up, and it was the rulers that were silent. 
just like Jesus said they'd be. Do you get the situ- you get the idea that he's in control of this? Completely under control. Notice too that the apostles were aware that this drama was being played out in the sight of God. They told their accusers, their those that were demanding that kingdom that was pushing them and conflicting them not to do what Jesus had said. He told them whether it's right in the sight of God or not, you decide. They knew who was watching. How would your perspective change? How would your fear and self-doubt evaporate if you knew that Jesus was watching and controlling every move? He is. He is. And how much more if you were confident of the Holy Spirit inside you, empowering you? He is. They were compelled by the Holy Spirit. Compelled. Under the threat, they didn't say, we will not stop speaking. They said, we cannot stop speaking. Because to refuse to speak would be disobedience to their Lord. Think about that. The apostles in their calculus didn't consider their testimony in terms of convenience or risk or looking for the right time. Because these were hostile rulers. These are the same people that 60 days earlier, 60 days, two months ago, had demanded the crucifixion of Jesus. But the apostles looked at it simply as a matter of obedience. Whether it's right or not, to give heed that is to obey, you decide. But we can't stop. We can't stop. That's Holy Spirit boldness. We can pray that the Holy Spirit would grant us boldness in our witness. I think that's a good prayer. I've started with that one here not too long ago, and I I hope you do too. We have good precedent. The Apostle Paul, the guy that was beaten and flogged for his testimony, the guy that uh, was all beat up and left dead and got up and went back into town, and I mean, just all kinds of things. You just see the boldness coming out of this guy. This is what he asked the saints in Ephesus to do. This is Apostle Paul. He says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. What to say and to say it confidently. They were confident. And the rulers noticed it. They noticed that they were uneducated and untrained and unqualified. They noticed that same thing about Jesus. They said, where'd this guy get all this wisdom? They didn't have a hidden agenda or any kind of slick rhetorical tricks. They were simply speaking what they knew to be true of Jesus. They were bold, but they weren't brash or defensive. Reminds me of what Peter would say later, right later in his gospel. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope within you, yet with gentleness and respect. They didn't argue 
with the ruler's authority to punish them? They acknowledged it. They didn't say, hey, we're apostles. Haven't you seen the stuff that we've been doing? I mean, the, the people that have been getting saved, the lame man being healed and all that stuff. You can't do that to us. They weren't like that at all. They understood that God had given the rulers authority over them. But also, they understood that Jesus has all authority over the rulers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the power of your gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. And Father, we pray that every heart in here would sanctify Christ as Lord. Set him apart. Make that statement be done. And acknowledge, Lord, who you are in every area of our lives. Father, open our mouths. Give us that Holy Spirit power for boldness to do, Lord, what you've commanded us to do. For the glory of Jesus, in his name we pray, amen.